Do you remember your days as a student where maybe the teacher would call on a classmate for the answer to a question and, and they gave a really bad answer and you thought, man, I'm glad they didn't call on me. I would have given that same bad answer. Phew, I escaped barely by the hair of my chin. Well, maybe you felt that way a little bit last week as we considered Paul's instructions to the elders to express virtue in their lives. Maybe you were thinking, phew, I'm glad the elders can feel convicted here because I think I might struggle with these things too. Well, then comes the moment when the teacher casts his glance on you and asks you a question as well. And that's what Paul is doing in Titus 2. He's moved his attention from the elders in the responsibilities and qualifications and moral virtue that ought to be evident in their lives to look at the entire congregation, to look at the rest of the assembly and say there ought to be church-wide gospel growth. No Christian is exempt from the transforming work of the gospel. And that is both a glorious life, hope instilling truth, as well as a really convicting reality. Every Christian ought to experience gospel growth in their lives. So while Paul does begin in Titus 1 by addressing the leaders of the assembly, because as a general rule, churches become like their pastors. That's a scary thing to think about, but churches become like their pastors. And so if a church is led by immoral, unqualified pastors, then the Christians will not experience the kind of growth that the gospel affords. But very quickly, Paul turns his attention to the rest of the assembly. And so in Titus 2, he starts by telling Titus to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. So where the false teachers are proclaiming things that are not sound and leading to immorality, Titus is to teach the church sound doctrine. And that teaching, that sound teaching is expressed in, in chapter 2. So we'll begin this morning by considering first the all-encompassing exhortation to Christian virtue. All-encompassing in two ways. First, all-encompassing with respect to the people. So regardless of age, gender, or status in society, there is an exhortation to Christian virtue. But then secondly, with respect to the all-of-life nature of Christian virtue. Every area of our lives ought to be infiltrated by Christian virtue. So as Paul gets into this, we need to remember that the lists we're about to read are example lists. They're not exhaustive lists. So Paul is attacking certain characteristics of Christian virtue that ought to be present. He's not giving an exhaustive list of every virtuous element that ought to be in our lives. Now, we've got to recognize that it's just an example list and not an exhaustive list to avoid two errors. Okay, so if we look at this list and say, oh, this is all that it means to be a Christian. First, we would commit the error of checking a virtue box while pursuing sin. So the first error would be to legalistically reason that we can pursue after sin as long as we don't explicitly violate one of the commands on the list, and particularly one that fits our age and gender categorization. 
This is legalistic because it turns a list into the measure of Christianity while seeking to minimize the commands of Christ and maximize selfishness and rebellion, all while trying to avoid pricking the conscience. So if we can understand that these lists are just examples of the larger commands of Christ, then we'll be able to avoid this error of just checking a virtue box while chasing after sin. The second error, also rooted in legalism, would be to make the virtue box God, to chase after the things on this virtue list as if that's reaching the pinnacle of Christianity and earning favor before God. So we can convince ourselves that we are standing rightly before God just because we're seeing these virtues evidence in our lives. And in fact, we can make the pursuit of these virtues everything at the exclusion of trying to know and relate to and enjoy God himself. So these virtues are not intended to be a checklist that once demonstrated means we've arrived. So you see how we can legalistically say, I have my checklist of virtues. I've checked the box. I'm there. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be in a relationship with God, being transformed to resemble him, to show his glory more clearly and to look like Christ more distinctly. And so we must be clear that these lists are not the ultimate standard of holiness, nor are they the only aspects of holiness. Instead, they're meant to be signposts that point us forward in our progressive sanctification as we seek to be more like Christ and to grow into a more intimate relationship with God. So having said that, let's jump into the list, starting with Paul's exhortation to older men. What it means to be an older man is not exactly clear, but if you feel like an older man, listen closely. Verse two, older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. So they're to be self-controlled. Older men are not to be controlled by greed or anger or alcohol or laziness or emotion or apathy or anything else. They're to take responsibility for themselves. They're to give order to their lives and they're to work out their calling as older men with discipline, self-control, and a level head. Older men are to be self-controlled, not ruled by passion, but ruled by the spirit of Christ. They're to be worthy of respect. Older men are to be honorable. Their behavior and manner ought to be worthy of people's respect, engaging in all that they do with dignity and care. Older men are not to use their age as an excuse to say and do whatever they want and just to talk, chalk it up to being a cranky old man. They're to be sensible. Older men must think carefully, logically, exercising prudence in their decisions. They're to make their decisions with clear, level-headed thinking. 
on the contrary to this idea. They should not be carried away by every simple idea that's presented to them. They should not run away and change their perspective on any matter just because it popped into their head or someone gave a convincing argument for something. Instead, they're to think carefully, to be sensible. And as such, they must avoid extremes. They shouldn't be reactive. They shouldn't be giving off-the-cuff responses. They shouldn't just act impulsively, but thoughtfully. And then they're to be sound in love, in faith, and endurance. That is, they're to have faith that's rooted deeply in God and his word that infuses all of their actions and relationships with love. So a faith that drives forward in love that then empowers them to walk through the challenges of life and old age leading up to their death with endurance. They're to be sound, stable men. So to imagine an older man who lives out these virtues is to imagine a stable individual who gives of himself for the good of others who shares wisdom where it is needed and who acts as a steadying, stabilizing force in his home, in his family, and in the assembly. Churches need older men who can act as stabilizing forces in the assembly. Families, wives, children, grandchildren need fathers and husbands and grandpas who can be a stabilizing force in their life as they're carried away by the different influences of culture and the different fears and challenges that they face as they age. And if dad, if grandpa, if husband isn't stable, he can't provide that stabling influence that the church so desperately needs. Paul then quickly shifts to older women in verses three and four. So he continues in the same way. So just as I instructed older men, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women. So Paul's instructions are very similar here. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. That is in their demeanor and in their actions, they ought to be reverent and venerable. They ought to be honorable in all that they do. This instruction, of course, correlates to that same instruction to older men to be worthy of respect. It's the same idea. Older women are to be dignified and honorable. They are not to be slanderers. So older women are not to be talebearers, spreading gossip, ruining relationships, spreading the worst about people across the assembly and in their friend groups. They're not to engage in what is usually a calculated, accusing speech that attempts to tear others down and raise themselves up. Instead, their speech ought to be marked by the faithfulness of Christ and sharing that faithfulness and forgiveness with others instead of speaking of the failures of others to wherever they can catch a sounding board. Older women are not to be slaves to excessive drinking. 
That is, they're not to while away the time with a glass of wine in hand becoming intoxicated. Now, this is not a prohibition, I don't think, against drinking alcohol, but it is a prohibition against the enslavement that can come with drinking alcohol. And it serves as a warning that alcohol or any other gift of God can be elevated to take the place of God as the master of our lives. We've noticed already multiple times that Paul uses this language of being a slave to God and of enslavement. And here he says, older women, you ought to be a slave of God, not a slave of alcohol. So they are instead to teach what is good. So instead of using their words to slander in demonstrating a life that's controlled by alcohol, they are instead to teach what is good. Both in their life and in their speech, they ought to be a representation of the transformation of the gospel in a long life committed to Christ. And in so doing, they breed life wherever they go. They speak words that encourage younger women and they demonstrate what it looks like to love God in every aspect of life. So then similar to older men, women who are older ought to be sources of stability and life in their homes and in the assembly. They must not be fountainheads of gossip and instability and relational harm. They're to be a steadying, stabilizing force wherever they go. Because we need mothers and grandmas and wives who can give words of wisdom to their daughters and to their children and to younger women in the the assembly who are navigating challenges of life that they've never faced before, but that you as an older woman have. So you have a responsibility to show virtue in your life and then to share how to walk a virtuous life to younger women, to others who come after you. Unfortunately, for both older men and older women, as we look at society, there are often too few examples of this stabilizing force. So start by reading the Bible. Read of a Ruth. Read of a Naomi who fails to be a stabilizing force, but then acts later on as a stabilizing force for Ruth. Read of Proverbs 31, of old men who give of themselves to God. Read of the old prophets who steadily and stably walked forward in a culture that rejected God and had a distorted view of virtue. Read biographies of men who lived full lives where the stories of their lives are written well after they were dead. So you're not disappointed when you see the further failures of individuals. But ultimately look to Christ who models stability and faithfulness in his discipleship of young men as he brought them along with him in his ministry. but the responsibility for Christian virtue doesn't lie just with the elderly, with the older among us. It's there, but virtue is cross-generational. It's required of all Christians because God is transforming all of us through the gospel. So Paul turns his attention to the younger women here. 
in verse four through five. He wants the elder women to encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. So young women are to love their husbands. Young women, if they are married, are to love their husbands. This would be a particularly important and difficult task in a culture where young women likely did not have much of a say in who their husband would be. But it's also an important command in a culture where we are taught that if you fall out of love with your husband, you no longer have a responsibility to love your husband. So in Paul's description and exhortation of young women to love their husbands, we see that love is not an emotion that you fall into and fall out of, but a deliberate choice to press forward in sacrificial relationship for the good of the other even if we don't feel like it. They're also to love their children. Young women, if they have children, are to love them, to give of themselves for the good of their children and to demonstrate to them what it means to live in the love and forgiveness of Christ, even when those children are annoying or frustrating or disobedient. Women, are to love their children. And love again is not merely a feeling, that feeling you get when your child obeys everything you want and you thought, this is why I had you. (laughs) But always. But love is not defined by permissiveness either. And in our culture, I think there is a tendency towards child idolatry where children are worshiped above all else and love for children is redefined in terms of permissiveness, of sacrifice beyond reason to make your child feel good about themselves or happy. That's not what Paul is instructing here. He's instructing the kind of love that will raise children according to the admonition of the Lord, to raise children who see what it's like to live virtuous lives and to live in obedience and repentance and trust in Christ. Then women are to be self-controlled. So young women like older women and older men are to exercise self-control. They're not to be controlled by fear of what others think about them. They're not to be controlled by a desire for financial stability, and they're not to be controlled by emotion. They're to be controlled by God's spirit, exercising discipline over their actions and their reactions. So they're to be self-controlled, living their lives in prudence and wisdom. And they are to be pure. This carries with it a sense of general moral purity, of upstanding uprightness before the Lord, but it also carries with it the connotations of chastity and sexual purity. There is to be a whole life righteousness before God, a resistance to the sexual impurity of our culture and the lessons that culture teaches that women can find advancement and acceptance through sexual impurity. 
they are to be workers at home. Young women are not to be idle, but are to give themselves to the vocation that God has set before them. If they have children and a husband, there's a vocation there. If they are single, there's a vocation to serve God wherever they're at. I don't think that Paul is instructing that women must work at home and they cannot have a job in the public sector. I think that would be imposing our economic system on the culture of the day, and it would be wrongly reading Paul's instructions into our culture. Instead, I think he is trying to commend to them, you ought to use your time well. You ought not be idle. If you have responsibility in the home, particularly to a husband and children, exercise it with diligence. But much like the example of the woman in Proverbs 31, or of Phoebe, or of countless other women in the scripture, women can exercise vocational responsibility out of the walls of their home. But wherever they are, they ought to be hardworking and disciplined and productive. That's Paul's point here. They are to be kind. That is, very literally, they're to be good. They're to relate to others and to their responsibilities with goodness, with care, with compassion. They're not to be those who are self-centered and to come off with an abrasive sense, who have an air about them that's off-putting, but instead they're to be kind and to be good. Finally, they're, in, they're to be in submission to their husbands. And you see the capping of these instructions with loving their husbands and being in submission to their husbands. This exhortation relates back to the reality that a married woman has as an important responsibility in her life, her relationship to her husband. And again, this instruction would be particularly important in a culture where a wife would not get to choose necessarily who she was married to. There would be a natural running away from responsibility to her husband. They are instead to treat their husbands with appropriate respect. I think it's important to note here that this verse does not give husbands the freedom to rule over their wives, nor is this verse one that ought to be probably hung up in the kitchen or quoted by husbands to their wives on a regular basis. Paul is giving Titus and the elders of the church the instruction to exhort women to live in submission to their husbands. He is not necessarily giving men a hammer to wield in their relationship. We have to recognize here that across the globe and across time, men have a tendency to wield authority in a distorted way over their wives. In fact, this goes all the way back to the fall where God says that women will be ruled over by their husbands. Their desire will be against their husbands. So there will be an inclination against women to throw off the responsibility to their husbands, but then husbands will rule over their wives. And that's not a positive statement. It's saying that they will distort the right headship and they will come down with an iron fist. This is part of who we are as broken individuals. And so this command for wives and younger women in particular to submit to their husband is a real command. You ought to pursue it. 
But husbands, we ought to recognize that we might have a tendency to abuse this command as well. So as Paul exhorts young women, exhorting them to conduct their lives in this honorable way, he says that it's so that God's word will not be slandered, but will instead be reverenced. People will have only good things to say about Christian teaching because of the deportment of young women. Paul then moves to the next category, which is his exhortation to young men. Verse six, he says, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, period. The list has gotten abruptly short, hasn't it? It started kind of small with old men. It got longer with old women. It got extremely long with younger women. And now there's an abrupt one sentence Young men be self-controlled in everything. Does the brevity of this sentence mean that young men have less of a responsibility to Christian virtue? No, for two reasons. Number one, the abruptness of this statement is probably meant to grab our attention in everything. So everything that was just said Those are some particular things to think about. Young men have a tendency not to exercise virtue in everything. So exercise virtue in everything, all of life, no room for error, no room to have a little bit of an unvirtuous tendency in your life. Everything is to be exercised in self-control. So number one, the abruptness of the statement is not meant to indicate a lower level or a lower standard of self-control, but a higher standard of self-control because it is the young men that Paul is looking to in particular as we read his letters as the future leaders of the assembly. And so these young men in particular ought to follow in the stead of the disciples who followed after Christ in exercising self-control and virtue in every area of life. But then number two, we also have to recognize that the phrase in the same way just builds on every category. So the Virtues and the exhortations given to the other categories are not just out of view now. Instead, they're stacking up one on the other. And so however the exhortation in one category would need to be adjusted to apply to another one, make that adjustment. So where Paul says, younger women love your husbands, he's also, as he gets into this next category saying, younger men love your wives. The exhortations build on one another. They don't replace one another. So Paul here simply instructs young men, have self-control in everything. Do not be ruled by your emotions. Do not be ruled by your sexual passions. Do not be ruled by alcohol. Do not be ruled by desire for advancement in your career. Do not be ruled by anything. Be self-controlled Be submitted as a slave of God. Don't give yourself as a slave to anything else. Then as Paul is 
targeting young men. He shifts back to Titus, who himself was likely a young man and who has been connected earlier with these elders who ought to lead the church. And he provides further instruction here. In verse seven, in the second half, he says, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So there are two primary ways that Titus was to encourage young men to be self-controlled. First, he was to be an example of good works. How will the young men and really the rest of the assembly know how to live a life that's self-controlled? How will they know what a self-controlled life looks like? Well, they ought to be able to look to their leaders and see an example of good works, an example of self-control. But then secondly, he was to teach them with integrity and dignity. Titus's teaching and therefore the rest of the elders who were to be appointed, their teaching was to be done with integrity and dignity. They ought not teach something different than what they live. They ought not teach self-control while living without self-control. Instead, they ought to display that virtue in their lives. They ought to teach with dignity, not with sensationalism, not with manipulation, but with living out the teaching in their own life, encouraging all to live virtuous lives with dignity. So both his words and his actions are to stimulate virtuous living in the assembly. Paul then makes a shift to speak to a particular category of people in society in that day. He makes an exhortation to slaves in verses 9 and 10. He writes, Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Now, such language, particularly with respect to slaves and masters, raises questions like, is Paul validating slavery? Is Paul teaching us that slavery is a good thing? Is there biblical warrant for slavery? These questions are important and they deserve to be answered, particularly because our country has a history of some Christians using texts like this to support the slavery that existed in our country. And because right now there is much discussion about ethnic harmony and racial reconciliation. Does the Christian Bible support slavery? I think we have to begin by saying that the slavery that existed in our country and other systems of slavery around the world are simply wrong. We get that. We feel that impulse and rightly so because these systems destroyed the dignity of human beings and they imposed a divine right by some humans over others that belongs to God alone. So our history of slavery in this country 
and wherever it has been perpetrated by the church is lamentable. However, that system of slavery is not the same system of slavery which was at work in the ancient world and in Paul's system. Now, I think we look even at that system of slavery and say it had some problems there. But the system of slavery that existed there was one that was not based on race or ethnicity. Sometimes it was voluntarily entered into and it was really used as a way of finding advancement in society. There was a genuine hope for release from this slavery as one submitted to their master, did their work in faithfulness and and achieved the objectives of their master so that they could find economic freedom and stability. I do not want to soften this ancient version of slavery and say it's a total equivalent to our form of going to work and having to show up at a job and receiving a paycheck and eventually gaining retirement. But it's something like the ancient crude version of that, okay? So when Paul talks about slavery, we can't imagine the same slavery that existed in our country. Instead, we have to imagine maybe a really harsh form of capitalism where employers really did have much more of a strong grasp on their employees' lives, but that there was still a real freedom that could come as wages were earned and as freedom was gained through hard, steady labor. Now, I think that the way that Paul talks about things here, and even as we read in other letters, such as the letter to Philemon, Christian masters were to be a different kind of master. And Christian slaves were to be a different kind of slaves. And in fact, the very instructions that Paul gives here would have furthered a slave on to be closer to reaching their freedom as they came out of this indentured slavery. While there are still ethical complications to ancient slavery, I think we need to have a different concept in our mind than American slavery, race-based chattel slavery when we read a text like this. And as we recognize this ancient Greco-Roman slavery system as something as a really crude version of our own workforce, we need to apply the exhortations to slaves to our roles in the workplace as we seek to serve a human master of sorts, the one who cuts our paychecks. We ought to have right respect for our employers, for our bosses to be well-pleasing, not the kind of employee who talks back or steals, but one who's faithful in his or her work. We ought to be a different kind of employee, just as these ancient Greco-Roman Christian slaves are to be a different kind of slave. So Paul's exhorted all people, no one's exempt regardless of age or status from pursuing Christian virtue. But what then is that motivation for Christian virtue? Well, it's been scattered throughout our text and it's been evidenced in some so that statements. As we've read, we've heard the so that statements that give a really basic motivation for exercising Christian virtue. They're not the only motivation for exercising Christian virtue, but as Paul is writing to to churches that are immature 
in a society that's defined by immorality, he has a particular driving motivation for these Christians to evidence Christian virtue and morality. They appear first in verse five, so that God's word will not be slandered. Second in verse eight B, so that any opponent that is to the message of the gospel taught by Titus in the elders at the churches will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us or Christians. And then verse 10 B, so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our savior in everything. So these purpose statements give the reason for virtue. It's so that the watching world will see that the gospel actually matters. It actually does something and Christians actually have something positive and life-giving to add to our society. So whether it's a husband or a wife or a child or an older man or a slave, they were not to allow their identity as Christian in dissonance with their failure to exercise Christian virtue be a driving influence that kept people from accepting the gospel. Instead, they were to live lives that would welcome others to see the transforming work of Christ in the church. That is, they were to look more like Jesus Christ than their fellow Christian citizens. So we might ask then, if this is the motivation for Christian virtue, what are the dangers or what are the consequences of failing to exercise Christian virtue? Well, it's kind of self-evident in the purpose statements, but let's consider two dangers of unvirtuous Christianity. That is a church that looks just like unbelievers. What are these dangers? First, there's the danger of confusing or probably more properly convoluting the message of the gospel. So in other words, when individuals identify as a Christian and claim to be in possession of the life transforming power of the spirit and to be grounded in the life transforming word of God, but fail to live godly lives, they confuse the message of the gospel. They leave people wondering, does the gospel actually matter? Does it teach anything different than the status quo of societal mores and cultural norms? If Christians do not live lives that reflect a change by the gospel, there's the question, what does the gospel actually say and what does it mean? And then unbelievers are left to draw lines between our lives in the content of the gospel that are probably totally off base. They begin to think that the Christian message is only about financial prosperity or political ideas or something else, because that's what our life becomes defined by with no respect to morality and virtue and goodness in life-giving relationships in the assembly. So if believers in that day looked a lot like Crete while claiming to be disciples of Christ, there would be confusion about what Christ's commands actually are and how Christians are actually intended to be different from the world. 
some in this dangerous path might even risk communicating that Christ commends immorality and lack of virtue. And in that case, Christ and his people should actually be removed from society. Instead, Paul wants Christians to live virtuous lives so that they can give with resounding clarity and accuracy the message of Christ. But then there's the second danger, not only of confusing the message of the gospel, but also of concealing the power of the gospel. Our culture and people throughout the ages have had philosophers and theologians of sorts who try to root virtue in something. And so we are surrounded by self-help books that promise to create change in our lives. Christians who fail to evidence the transforming power of the gospel conceal the fact that it's actually the power of the gospel that transforms us and not a self-help book. It is not our own self-discipline that does this. And if Christians fail to be transformed by the gospel and revert only to self-improvement methods that any unbeliever could use, we begin to conceal the power of the gospel in our lives. But in fact, it is this very power that Paul teaches, undergirds, and serves as a foundation for any virtue in our lives. It is not cultural ideas of virtue. It is instead the transforming power of the gospel. And so in the last verses of this chapter, Paul points us to consider the power that enables Christian virtue. He writes, beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Again, notice a universal scope. All are included in the exhortation to virtue, Well, all can be included because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So there is a gospel grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ that enables us then to live virtuous, godly lives in this present age. Now, there are three features that we need to recognize in this description of that gospel grace. First, that gospel grace frees us from slavery to sin. It brings salvation. Okay, there is indeed the eschatological salvation in view here, but given Paul's repeated reference to slavery throughout Titus so far, that salvation is probably better understood in terms of salvation from the captivating master of sin. We're freed from the captivity of sin and instead we're assigned as slaves to God. So this freedom that comes through Christ reaches to all people who will receive it, regardless of their age or their ethnicity or their status or background or anything else. The grace of God is sufficient to free you from sin. 
none of us can say because of who I am, because of my genetics or DNA or family background or social situation, I can't be freed from the captivity of sin. Because Paul declares here that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Second, gospel grace then orients us now in our freedom towards Christ's return. So our lives are shaped by the vision of the return of our Lord and master, Jesus Christ, rather than anything else in this life. Now, when we speak of this future hope of Christ's return, we're not talking about some wishy-washy potentiality, but a future that is sealed in the person of Jesus Christ that will happen. It's for sure. It's not merely a possibility or even a probability, but a future reality secured by Christ. So then as people who've been freed from sin and now are oriented towards Christ's return, we live not according to this world's value system or agenda or cultural mores or anything else connected to this life, but instead we live according to the system of the age to come that will be ushered in by Christ on the final day. Third, the grace of God in Christ, this gospel grace meets us in Christ's redemption. That is, it is afforded to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the grace of God was manifested preeminently, clearly, without a doubt in Jesus Christ. He will appear once again to confirm this as we are finally transformed fully, but he has already redeemed us. So he's redeemed us. He's given himself for us so that our freedom has already been paid for. He has already done this. What's positionally happened already. And though the, the age now is passing the way and the age to come is still, still on its way, in this already not yet, we can be assured of our freedom from sin because Christ paid the debt. He gave of his life. He lived in obedience. And so on the cross, in that act of redemption, he crushed the serpent. And he crushed all those who are of the seed of the serpent, who follow after the ways of the serpent. And so in this redemption, our freedom is secured forever. So it is not a work that we We do not improve ourselves to express this virtue, but we tie into the redemptive power of Christ that then transforms us as we become image bearers of Jesus. Our identity is changed. We are now in him. So, Paul has given exhortation to Christian virtue. He's given a basic motivation. And now he's kind of given the foundational explanation, the the explanation of God's grace that empowers our virtuous living. But he doesn't want us to end there. He wants to drive home that living, virtuous, moral, gospel-transformed lives belongs first in the realm of the assembly. It is not an individual privatized endeavor. It is instead a corporate responsibility. There's a church-wide responsibility for Christian virtue. 
This is why Paul concludes this section after giving these exhortations to virtue to proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So we do not hear the exhortation and become our own judges of whether or not we are living in obedience to Christ. We do this in the context of the Christian community. And this is why we have a church covenant. It reminds us of these exhortations. And then it reminds us of our special obligation to one another, to encourage each other and to rebuke one another when we fail to live as genuine Christians. Now, it is true that verse 15 is a direct instruction to Titus. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. But in the mission that Titus has, he's intended to go on to another place. And so he is to instill within the DNA of the church an atmosphere and a culture of proclaiming and encouraging and rebuking these virtuous admissions. We ought to encourage one another to live virtuous lives, rebuke one another when we fail, and together press forward in gospel transformation. There is then this demand, this exhortation, this command for church-wide gospel growth. This is vital for us to get as an assembly. We often identify with Paul's instructions in Titus 1, where he tells him to set in order what remained or to complete what was left undone. Well, in our church restart endeavor, we have found shared identity there. And so we look to Titus as Paul's instructions of how to create or cultivate a stabilized, healthy, growing assembly. And while we rightly reevaluate our programs, while we rightly pursue a new location as a base for gospel ministry, as we rightly try to spruce up the building where we are, have a nice website, those are not the things that are fundamental to the health and stability and the growth of a church. It is instead the transformation of the gospel in the lives of each one of us and in of us is assembly. So while we rightly are giving a lot of time and attention to this relocation initiative, let us not forget that our primary calling is to live as Christian disciples, transformed by the gospel of Christ. Let's do this together by God's grace.